you take a Bible this morning, turn with me there to 2 Samuel chapter 21. This last Lord's Day, we read and considered together the first 14 verses of this chapter. And so we will pick up in verse 15 and take the second portion of this chapter only down to the end of it, to verse 22. Let's be reminded as we turn here together that we are now in a unique portion of the books of Samuel in that the historical narrative has ceased, at least in terms of the author's uh, interest in chronology. And, And we have noted that the author now seems to have a strong desire to teach us some things theologically about the nature of David's kingship and the kingdom of God as it is established under him. So what I mean is that up to verse chapter 20, up to chapter 20 of 2 Samuel, particularly the very end of um, the last few chapters, the end of those two books from 2 Samuel about chapter 11 on to chapter 20, we have seen some great failures in King David's life and the resulting consequences for David, his family, and his kingdom. And so it's not been the best of picture. For while we once came in the story in these books to have this great love for and admiration for David, uh, I think to some degree the knowledgeable reader will have had that love for and admiration for King David compromised or questioned just a bit. And so we saw all the way up to the end of chapter 20 what is a frail and incomplete, if you will, kingdom under David's reign, which has its sort of very real benefits to be sure. It it may not all be good news for David, and it may not look so great for David, but it definitely has some practical theological benefits as we study David's failure and the frailty of the kingdom. We're forced to acknowledge the providence and the sovereignty and the strength of the God that sustains that kingdom. But it's not sustained by David, who is weak and frail and full of failure and sin. And though the kingdom be um, frail and compromised, it, it will not fall, because it is God's kingdom, it is God's people, and His kingdom and His people will stand, and they will be saved. It is in that light, however, that chapter 21, beginning at verse 15, comes as a welcome reminder. Because when the page shifts in chapter 21, we've got these six stories, vignettes, in the last few chapters of this book that are arranged not chronologically, but so ordered that we might be taught some things about David and his kingdom, wanting us to see it in a certain light. But it begins by continuing the theme of David's inabilities and the inabilities of his kingdom. Last Sunday, we saw the mess of the atonement that was made in David's wisdom for the Gibeonites. Saul had offended years before the Gibeonites 
He had profaned the covenant promise that Israel had made to preserve them. Saul had then slaughtered them, and there had been judgment upon the land. And in order that atonement would be made for the sin, seven of Saul's sons were offered up. What we saw, though, is that while there may have been some value, and there was, and significance to the atonement that was made, it was a very insufficient atonement. It was not an atonement that perfectly brought into harmony justice and righteousness and joy and salvation. Though it may have atoned for the sin, it left, if no one else, the mother of two of those young boys in great disarray and sorrow as she went and guarded their bodies that hung in the land and kept the birds from picking them. And we notice the difference there. How it points us to the king of David that was coming, the son of David, the king of God's people, that would rule completely and perfectly and would make an atonement for sins that would not leave anyone wanting, but for all who would come trusting in the atoning blood of Christ, satisfaction and joy and rest would be theirs. So we saw something of the inability, continuing inabilities of David's kingship and of the kingdom of God under David. And so, as I said, beginning of verse 15, we get a welcome reminder that it's not all bad for David. And that while we may look uh, at so much of his failure, and certainly we've been reminded about that up to this point, I think we may be prone to forget how great David was and the strength of David's kingship and the strength of Israel under his rule and his reign. So that is actually going to lead us to the first point then. Um, when, when we turn in just a minute, I want to, and I want to give you these ahead of time so you can think about them as we read. We're going to consider the strength of the kingdom. We're going to consider, consider the sovereignty of God that is the basis for that strength. And we're going to consider the severity, the severity of the God that ruled them. So strength. Sovereignty and severity. So keep that in mind. We're going to see here the strength of David's kingdom in delivering them from the hand of their enemies. He was good at that. God ordained it to be so and led it to be so. So let's pray and ask God to open this scripture for us. And then we'll read verses 15 to 22 and consider it together briefly. God, thank you for the word that you have given us. This food that you now desire to, to feed us. God, we, we want to hear it and to, to know it, to be changed by it. But we also know that we are desperately in need of your spirit to accomplish this. And so we pray that miraculously your word would go forth into our hearts, transforming us into the image of Christ, building us up in our knowledge and understanding of the gospel, and setting us on the path of righteousness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 2 Samuel chapter 21, beginning in verse 15. It says, There was war again between the Philistines and Israel. And David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ishti Binob, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze, and whose, who was armed with a new sword, fought to kill David. But Abishai... The son of Zariah came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After this, there was war again with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai, the Hushathite, struck down Saph, 
who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And Elhanan, the son of Jer or Agim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature, who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in number. And he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shammai, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. This may seem this may seem like a pretty lean passage. Frankly, I mean, if you read ahead, you may have been thinking, now, what, what are we going to garner from, from these verses? It, it, on the face of it, it's simply a military report. It is telling us now, recounting for us some of the military victories that David and his men enjoyed in Israel. It's hard to know exactly when this took place and when these events uh, happened. We know for certain, I think, that it happened after the Goliath incident. I think there's evidence in the text to support that. And as we'll see in a moment, I think there's evidence in the text that would say that it happened perhaps and probably very later in David's reign, toward possibly the end after, uh, after maybe the Absalom incident. But we're not 100% sure. Um, nonetheless, uh, we, we know that at some point in David's reign, there was war, as it says in verse 15, again with the Philistines. And as I mentioned to you just a moment ago in Lee, uh, I want to point out by way of comparison the strength of David's kingdom, that this is a welcome uh, reminder that it is not all bad in Israel, that no matter how frail it may seem to be and how loosely in control God may seem to be, it is actually quite to the contrary. And I think intentionally, verses 15 to 22 are being compared, both literally theologically to verses 1 through 14. So that this section of vignettes, it opens up with this comparison. On the one hand, we see the inabilities of King David and in Israel. That is the inability to completely and perfectly atone and make atonement. Right? So that though David may be great and though there may be some value and significance to his place in redemptive history, he is not the one where our hope lies. It, it presses us to look forward to Christ that was coming, the greater king and son of David that was yet to come, that would accomplish and do all that David in his failure and frailty was not able to do in Israel. So we saw that. But then it's immediately contrasted with the strength of David's kingdom. And when we consider, well, what is the strength of David's kingdom in Israel and of his rule in Israel, we're reminded because the wars against the Philistines in Israel that are now, again, in this text, raging, are the same wars that have been raging for all of the books of Samuel. It's a Philistine opposition to Israel, the conflicts that resulted, uh, the battles that ensued, they are part of the backdrop of the entire period of the history of the children of Israel from, 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 from all of the stories of, of the books of Samuel. If you go all the way back to the very beginning of these books, the books of Samuel open with the story of the fighting between, guess who? The Israelites 
and the Philistines. And if you remember, ultimately the Philistines are victorious in the beginning, and their conquest of Israel results in the theft of the Ark of the Covenant. So that they steal the Ark, they take it back to their home, and they set it up before their god, Dagon, in his temple. Well, if you know the story, if you were with us when we looked there, it did not go well for them. Um, their, 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 their statue of their God ends up on his face on multiple occasions and in pieces. Uh, if you remember this opposition by the Philistines over Israel, it's a large part of why Israel ultimately demands that God give them a king. Remember, it, it, it's, it's going on before Israel ever has a king, and they look around and they want the safety of the Israelites. Uh, that, that, that they, they want the safety of Israel that they see at the cities surrounding the peoples around them. And they demand that God would give them a king that would protect them, at least in part precisely from their opposition like the Philistines and the advance of the Philistines against them. If you remember, the stories continue. Saul, who is the very first king that God places over Israel, he is commissioned to, quote, as we're told, deliver the Israelites from the hand of the Philistines. We see Jonathan in 1 Samuel 13 giving attention to do just that, that his father was unwilling or unable to do, where he goes and rises and comes against the Philistines, encouraging Saul to do the same. We're told in 1 Samuel 14 that there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. Then when David enters the picture, you think about places like 1 Samuel 17, we see him regularly fighting against the Philistines. What's one of the first stories that you think about when someone says David? David and Goliath. Goliath the Gittite. Goliath the Philistine. The giant mighty warrior that they paraded out in battle who derided God and his people and dared them to come out against him. And God raises up little David who comes out against the Philistines. You want to see more about David's crushing Defeats over the Philistines, you can go to 1 Samuel 18, 1 Samuel 19, 1 Samuel 23. You, you can move into 2 Samuel. I'm recounting a bit of this history because I, I think it's important for us to realize that the, the battle between the Philistines and Israel was and had been and was going to continue to be an ongoing affair. If you remember, ultimately, the Philistines are those that killed King Saul in battle. King Saul meets his end out on the battlefield before the Philistines. But if you get to 2 Samuel chapter 8, as we've already read, ultimately you find that what it says about King David in his reign, unlike King Saul in his reign, is that he defeated the Philistines and subdued them. 2 Samuel chapter 8 verse 1. And if you want to see an example of that defeating and subduing, you can turn again to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 17 and following. I know that I've given you a lot of references, and I'm, I'm recounting a lot of what we have studied up to this point. But I, I think it's extremely important, because the point, I believe, is that for all the failure we've seen in David, and all of the inabilities of his reign and his rule and his kingdom in Israel, we must not forget that there was a certain strength. He was a military force to be reckoned with. By God's design and appointment, he had been commissioned as Saul 
to defend and to deliver the people of God from the hand of the Philistines. And the reality is, in spite of whatever failure we see, this text is reminding us that in that arena, David knew great success. Remember that his men that were with him, even when he was in the caves on the run, were always referred to as mighty men. Remember that David himself was feared as a man of great valor and a man of war. The one that the Philistines sang songs about as having killed their tens of thousands. Remember, that's King David. Saul and all of the forces that he could muster could not subdue King David and his few men. Absalom and his minions could not subdue David and his men. Even when David was in exile with his men outside of the kingdom, with limited resources with which to fight, the opposition, the Philistines and anyone else, they could not come against David and be victorious. David was a mighty man of war. Think about how many opponents we have seen from within, from without, that rose all through the books of Samuel against the Israelites and particularly King David. And let us consider the question, how many of them were successful? Zero. None. None. Yeah, we've seen, we've seen David's sin. We've seen his failure. We've seen the inabilities of his rule and his kingdom, where at one point he's reigning over Israel with justice and righteousness, and then you turn the page and he's committing gross unrighteousness and seems to have compromised integrity and motives. Friends, let us think about how many opponents have come against God's anointed king and God's anointed people and how many of them have fallen. All of them. All of them. Before moving on to the next part, I think we have to ask the question, why? Where did David's strength come from? What was the source of David's military might? Was it just because he was a military genius? Was it just because he was some sort of... uh, crazy, strong uh, mercenary that was a better fighter than any other, that he led his men better than any other. I mean, was he the, the William Wallace before his men leading them into war to use the analogy of Braveheart here? That's not it. It wasn't that he was more inspiring than all the other leaders. It wasn't that he was all smarter than all of the Philistine leaders. It wasn't that his men were larger. We see that from the text here with the giants that they face and the problem that they pose. Why in the world were they so victorious? Well, that leads us to the second point. The basis of the strength that they enjoyed. Friends, it was not on account of anything in David. It was because of the sovereign rule of God. It was because of the mighty hand, the power of God, according to the promises that he had made. Now, lest you think I'm reading into this, the text makes yet another comparison to draw this out. 
While this text before us is super short and lean and there's not a lot there, there's no narrative, there's no plot, it's just a record. The one thing that it does do explicitly is tell us all about the foes, doesn't it? We're told that these, on three different occasions, we're told that these men are the giants, literally that they're the descendants of Rapha. I think that's probably an allusion to the fact that they were the descendants of the Rephaim, which is a group of people of old, of time past in the Old Testament, that were known to be humongous brutes of war. They were huge giants in the land, just massive men. And it is probably that these men of the Philistines were some of the last line of those Rephaim. Maybe not, but I think that's probably what's going on with the use of the language of Rapha and the giants that are seen there. And we also know that the the Philistines were known to be men that were giants. We're told about these men specifically. We're told about how much their stuff weighed, their, 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 their swords and their spears. The first guy with Ishvi Bino, one of the descendants of the giants, his spear weighs 300 shekels of bronze. That's a lot. That's all you need to know. The average dude didn't carry that into war. Not only that, they were well equipped. They're coming against David and his men with superior might and superior equipment. He has a new sword. That is probably that he went and outside of his usual attire and arrangement for battle and he went and made extra preparation in order that they would be victorious. But he was killed. And then we're told about the next one of these, but Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and he delivered David. Notice he tells him about being the lamp of Israel, that you're too important, the stakes are too high. I'm going to mention that again in just a moment. But then there was war again. Sibachai, the Hushite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants also. There was again war with the Philistines at God, and Elhanan, the son of Jeroragim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. You may have a question here. You should. What's going on? Goliath, the Gittite, whose staff is like a weaver's beam. Who killed him? David did, not Elhanan. All right, so we have, what, what in the world's going on here? Is the word of God in error? Is there some huge problem in the text? I have to be honest with you, I don't, I'm not 100 sure what the answer necessarily is. I, I'm going to tell you what some of the options are. Well, some, some theologians and commentators would argue that Elhanan is simply another name for David, like a royal name. Like when, when kings take office, they assume a, a, a name that's not their own. Um, there's no real evidence in the text that that's the case. David's never alluded to by this name again. And I think the author would have been well aware that David is the one who struck him down. Another option is that this is not the same Goliath the Gittite from 1 Samuel 17. Again, it's possible, I find it unlikely though, when it tells us specifically his full name and his where he's from, it's Goliath the Gittite. And it tells us the exact same language. He was known for his giant staff or spear that was like a weaver's beam. So, so I think it probably is the same. And the third option is, I think, and probably the simplest and the easiest, is that there's been a problem in transmission. 
what I mean is that when we talk about the absolute inerrancy of Scripture, that it never errs, that it's inspired by God, you realize that we're talking about the original autograph. When it was originally written down by these men in Hebrew and Greek and in Aramaic, friends, we don't have that autograph. We have copies of copies of copies of copies of that autograph. And though it has been very carefully copied, and God has preserved that for us so that it maintains its integrity, that does not mean that there's not ever any single error at all in terms of the actual details that are written down. If you go to Chronicles and you read the, the mirror image, the, 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 the same story as it's given in Chronicles, what it actually says is, is that Elhanan struck down the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, whose spear was like a weaver's spear. I think that's probably the case. I think that's probably giving the accurate record. And at some point in the transmission or the copying down of the original and autograph, it was maybe lost in translation just a bit. But it, listen, it should not cause you any heartburn or concern. God has preserved his word and provided it for us in English so that we can understand it and read it together. But the point is that they are striking down the biggest of the big, the strongest of the strong, the greatest and mightiest of military men of their day who rose against David and his men with superior strength, superior skill perhaps, superior weapons to be sure and armor. And look at this last guy. We're told that this dude has six fingers and six toes on every hand and foot. That just sounds odd to me. And, and we might recount that detail in sort of making fun of someone or talking poorly, deriding someone in our day today. That was not the case. He was simply recounting the details that this cat was massive. He was huge. So big that he had more fingers and more toes and more capacity and more strength. He's trying to help us to see the measure of this man. Now, the comparison that I think is being made is this. They come against two David. At this point, David is, as the text tells us, go back up. Verse 15, the very end of it. They fought against the Philistines, what? And David grew weary. So you've got mighty men Huge, lots of weapons, lots of armor, the biggest of opponents, a giant problem coming against David, who is weary, who is in danger of quenching the lamp of Israel. Look, when, 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 when his, his commanders tell him, you've got to stay back, you can't go out in the front and fight with us, it is probably because he was so weary and so downtrodden, he was at risk of death and being overtaken. And they're saying the cost is too great. You are the light and the strength of Israel. You are God's anointed and appointed king over us. And if you die, then our hope is lost. But it speaks to his frailty. And it speaks to his weakness. David was weary. We can assume his men were probably to some degree weary as well. So where does his strength come from? Well, don't you see the point is to compare the, the truth that we read from 1 Samuel 17, 45. Let me, let me read it for you and follow. And this is when David came against Goliath. Listen very carefully. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, 
the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with a sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. We're told in 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 18, that God promised to save his people Israel by the hand of my servant David. He says, I will save my people Israel. 2 Samuel chapter 8, verses 6 and 14, we're told on two separate occasions that everywhere David went, the Lord gave him the victory. Friends, I would ask you, what's the point? It is to help us to see that our stature and our capacities and our strengths and how many fingers or toes we have, how big our swords are, how new our equipment is, that none of those things matter. The only things that, the thing that matters is whether or not the Lord our God fights on our behalf. And the reality is that the testimony of the books of Samuel is that everywhere David went, in all of his frailty and in all of his sin, he went in victory because God delivered him. Because God saved him by his sovereign rule and mighty hand. God did for David what David couldn't do for himself. What Saul couldn't do. What no man could do. What no army could do. What no sword or spear or horse or chariot. It's like, it's, it's like the Psalms. Some trust in horses. Some trust in chariots. But we will trust in the Lord our God. The comparison that's being made is between the frailty of David and the strength of the opponents. And the truth is that their strength meant nothing because they came before the sovereign God of the universe. Friends, who shakes their fist at God and survives? No one. Dagon, the God of the Philistines, was no match for the God of the Israelites. The leaders of the Philistines... The Ammonites, the Ammonites, the Amalekites, the... No one. When we look back over the testimony of these pages, it tells us of the truth of a sovereign God that chooses His own. And because of the promises He makes to those He has chosen like David, they must be preserved. The little bit about the Rephaim is important too because it's not just the promises God made to David. God promised David that he would sit on, that, that, that one of his descendants would come and sit on his throne forever. God, God promised that through David he would deliver his people from the hand of the Philistines. But it's not just on account of the promises God made to David. If you go all the way back to Genesis 15 with Abram, Abraham, Genesis 15, when God makes a covenant with Abram and he promises that his descendants would inherit the land. And then he lists the peoples that were currently dwelling in the land that would have to be flushed out before that land could be given as a blessing to God's people. Do you know who one of the people listed are? God says, I will give your descendants the land and they will inhabit it. The land of the Rephaim. Friends, because of the promises that God has made to the chosen ones according to his election, God, by his power, brings them to be. There is no question that there is no concern 
There is no ultimate wondering as to whether or not the people of God and the kingdom of God and his king will stand. Everywhere David went, God gave him the victory by his power, according to his promise. The last thing that I want you to see is the severity. There's one other comparison that's being made in this text. We've seen the comparison that's being made between the sort of strength or success of David's kingdom and the failures of his kingdom in the chapter. We've also considered the comparison being made between the strength and the capacities of the Philistine opponents of God's people and his king and the weariness of God's people who depended upon God, so the strength and sovereignty of God to lead and deliver them. Finally and lastly then, there's a comparison being made between what is to come of those who fear God and trust Him and those that oppose God and deride Him. And friends, there is severity in this chapter. When we look, it accounts for us, these mighty men. All of them were struck down. All of them were run through with a sword. All of them were taken care of in a brutal way. Let's go to verse 21. Mr. Six Digits has come out and he is, it says in verse 21, and when he taunted Israel or derided Israel. Friends, this is the exact same language that we saw of Goliath the Gittite when he came out against Israel and David in 1 Samuel 17. David lost his head that day. God shut his mouth. Headless giants can't taunt. And so this six-digit customer comes with the same derision for God and his people, taunting them. And when he did, Jonathan, the son of Shammai, David's brother, struck him down. And then we're given the summary of what happened to all of these men. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. David was weary but victorious because God was with him. The giants were strong, but they fell because God was against them. Friends, let this be both, number one, a warning, and number two, an encouragement. First of all, a warning. What is to come of those who deride and taunt God and his people? It does not go well for them. That is the testimony of these verses. That is the testimony of the dead giants in 2 Samuel chapter 21, in 1 Samuel 17, that those who raise their hand against the Lord and His anointed, they will be silenced and it will not be pretty. They will lie dead. They may lose their head. They will certainly lose their voice. Taunt God, they will no more. Deride his people, they will no more. And so for us, let it be a warning. Let us never be found among them. Friends, it is an unwise thing to come against God. It is an unwise thing to come against his people. It is a dangerous thing to deride the God of the universe, his purposes, his plans, his promises, and his people. But secondly, let it be an encouragement. Friends, this is good news. Because in 2 Samuel 21, 
We're given a foretaste of what is sure to happen in the end one day. See, for all of God's people like David, in the midst of all of our failures and sins, in the midst of all of our struggles and burdens, in the midst of all of the anxieties and depressions and difficulties of our life, as we labor along together, wondering if evil is winning, fighting for joy and success, as we press on day to day, wondering about the circumstances around us, these dead giants give testimony to the truth that, friends, for the people of God, no one can come against us, and there is coming a day as promised when Jesus will return victorious. And it makes us mindful of the day, doesn't it, as these giants, metaphorically speaking, were under the feet of David and his men, fallen before them, of the day that God will come for his bride, for his church, and he will stamp out everyone that opposes them. A day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. The scripture tells us that Jesus Christ is Lord. A day when every enemy of God and his church will be crushed under his feet. And friend, it's a day when every poor sinner that has turned to Christ through faith and repentance, spiritually speaking, will be given the land and will receive the ultimate rest that God has promised. There are not many verses here, and in these verses there are not many words, but they have a lot to say. They tell us about the strength of the God we serve. They tell us about His sovereign providence and the care that He takes in ruling and preserving and providing for us. They tell of the surety of our salvation and deliverance. They tell of the absolute destruction of the wicked. Because these verses should press us to Christ. I would ask you, has there ever been a time in your life when you have come before God in humility on your face, acknowledged that you have offended and accosted Him and His righteousness, and pleaded with Him to forgive you and to make you His own? Because if you haven't, you're no better than the giants of Gath. And if you continue in your disobedience and unrepentance, profaning the righteous, gracious blessing of God, there's coming a day when you will fall. So friends, let's turn to Christ. Let's repent of sin. Let's trust in Him to lead us, to do what David could not do. Let's trust in Him to do what our leaders and presidents and pastors cannot do. Let's trust in Christ to lead us from this day and into eternity. To save us according to His promise by His mighty power. Let's pray. God in heaven, um, I pray that you would help us to see the truth of the gospel in these verses. That we would not be so aware of the failures of David in Israel and the struggles of the kingdom that we miss the strength to see that you were with them and leading and guiding them and fighting for them. God, may we declare, as did David, the battle is the Lord's. 
God, and if you're for us, no one can come against us. God, I pray that you would encourage our hearts this day to trust you. Come what may in this life, but we would trust that this is the testimony of what comes to all of those who oppose God in the end. That you are coming to get us. That you will indeed deliver us, and that our opponents will fall. God, give us great hope in these verses, and encourage us to obedience. In Jesus' name we pray.